Originally from Chicago, Illinois, Dr. James Reed became a community activist after his honorable discharge from the Air Force in 1974. Since then, he served as a housing commissioner for six years, spent five years on the school board, and was a founding member of the Santa Clara Valley Urban League. He's also served as the political action chair for the Northern California NAACP, as well as its first vice president. He's been vice chairman of the City and County Human Rights Fair Housing Commission, chairman of the United Negro College Fund for Sacramento Valley. Dr. Reed's a board member of Family First Foster Care Agency, Habitat for Humanity, the United Way, Visions Rights of Passage Editorial Advisory Committee. He's a consultant for the Department of Education's Gender Equity Division, co-founder of the Northern California African American Young Male Conference, mentor and member of the 100 Black Men of Sacramento, part-time professor of environmental studies at CSU Sacramento, and a Prince Hall Freemason. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. How are you feeling? I'm doing excellent. Actually, I'm doing better than that, but I didn't want to make you jealous, so you tell everybody, hey, I met the devil, he made me jealous and made me sin. Help me, Holy Ghost. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so I uh, met you uh, last week at the 100 Black Men event over at, um, at the high school. And I remember you had mentioned uh, when you were giving your speech on stage that you had retired the day before. Yes, I had actually retired six years ago, the day before I was the senior electric transmission systems engineer for the California Energy Commission, but I'm still teaching at Sac State. Actually, I'm, I'm the only professor of African-American descent teaching environmental science in the entire 23 campus CSU system. That's one of the reasons that I've been hanging around part-time for 20 years so that I could leave a legacy by helping other young African-Americans get into graduate school so they could get a doctorate, so they could replace me. And right now I have 12 legacy students uh, who have already graduated from Sac State who are now uh, working towards earning their doctorate. So you're the only African-American professor teaching, at, at the, to teaching environmental science um, at CSU. In the entire 23 campus CSU. And what, what on generally speaking, um, on average at any various campuses, where would I find, how many African American environmental science professors would I find? You would find one, me, <laughs> at Sac State. There are none throughout the CSU-wide system except for myself. And that's why I brought up the point of the legacy uh, trying to get other African-American former students into the graduate programs so somebody could take over for me. Because the subjects that are uh, impacting the African-American community include environmental injustice. And I, I, I think it's very important to put a ladder down. When, when we become successful to put a ladder down behind us so that others can have a way up. Um, but looking towards what things we could be, we could accomplish in our community that could provide a better future for the youth. Um, someone of your experience, let, let's talk about your youth, your childhood, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. So what was it like, like, like how, do you, how do you grow up to become Dr. James Reed? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you have a mother that is six foot one 
and a special ed teacher. Back then it was called the Educably Mentally Handicapped. And you have a father uh, who graduated from Howard University and then got his master's at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, you're taught the importance of education. Now you see my children are fifth generation college graduates. Both of them have earned master's degrees. My great great-grandfather was one of the founders of Knoxville College down in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was a Presbyt Scott Presbyterian minister. So my family has been either involved with education since the 1870s or uh, we've been educators. But you see, I knew I was going to go to college or I was going to die. They were going to kill me. My parents. <laughs> and uh, growing up, I went to Catholic schools. Um, told the joke uh, when I was working on my doctorate down at the University of San Francisco about that we were taught by the Sisters of No Mercy. <laughs> Not realizing that the principal of Mercy High School in San Francisco was one of my cohorts. She looked at me like, I'm shooting daggers at you. But all of my family uh, have been educated. My mother graduated from high school at age 18, got uh, a triple major at Chicago Teachers College in mathematics, education, and chemistry, then got her master's degree in uh, elementary education from the University of Chicago. When my father died, he was working on his law degree. So my four uncles took over after my father died in 1965. All of them were college educated. You're going to college or you're going to die. But you see, the selective service system had a different attitude towards African-American males in Chicago. My lottery number was number one during the Vietnam War. <laughs> and they refused to give me a student department, mm -hmm. even though I had 116 scholarships when I was from high school. I'm sorry, did you say 116? 116. 89 were academic because I was a national merit finalist, and the rest were track and football. And out of the clear blue sky, well, I knew it was God, but uh, I got a letter on March 8th saying we we're about to submit your name to the class entering the United States Military Academy at West Point, but we didn't have your date of birth. Jesus did that. <laughs> oh man, there's a lot to unpack in there. Um, before before I even before I get to 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 the, to the scholarships, which is amazing, uh, your parents would have had to have come to maturity in one of a one of the time periods in history that was. Very difficult for black people during World War Two, and and so, and you and you, you you know, prior to the, it's not common, in for for black folks, prior to, the the first World War, to have large scale access like that to to higher education, and your parents navigated that multiple times. Did they did they encounter? Um, the issues of Jim Crow and things like that? Yes, because you see, my mother's uh, paternal side 
are from Birmingham, Alabama, and seven of them were school teachers. They all went to Tuskegee. My grandfather, who had fought in World War I, he and his two brothers, they got drafted during the Great Migration. They moved to Chicago. Uh, their father, Charlie Meadows, was the first black general contractor in the state of Alabama. And he's the one who built 16th Street Baptist Church. He built Parker High School. He built A.P. Gaston's insurance building and a number of other buildings for African Americans. So the seven school teacher girls, three sons, well, there was a fourth son, but he got killed by the Klan uh, in the late, late 1890s, Charlie Meadows, Jr. But on my mother's side, both her paternal and maternal side, because her maternal side were the founders of Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about to get its reaccreditation. So, you know, when I say my children are fifth-generation college graduates, I mean a fifth that generation. Is, that is you know, and we can trace it back. Well, we've already traced it back. <laughs> then on my father's side, you know, same stories. You know, uh, they didn't found or establish uh, college, but you know, they they had the opportunities to grow in education. So let me let me ask you this question. Uh, would, would it be accurate to say that as a youth, you were very, uh, let me rephrase. Were you, you, well, you, you, did you get into trouble at all when you way. were little? Let me put it this way. Uh, my mother stood over me at her kitchen table when I was in second grade learning my times tables. And every time I get one wrong, I get smacked on the shoulder with her house shoe. Now, the house shoes back in the 1950s were hard. I'm faster than a calculator now because I remember her smacking me on the shoulder. You can't do that anymore. But <laughs> no, you came home and you did your homework. And it better be done by the time they got home. Mm -mm. So you were very obedient when you were when you were a kid. Like you didn't get in trouble a lot. I, <laughs> I'm not gonna say I didn't. But, you know, I, I joked that I'm a gentleman by an act of Congress and my mama and daddy's whoopings. And I learned most of them the first time. Mm, fast learning. Oh, yeah, except when uh, my mother went ninja on me one night and uh, threw that Paul Revere soup pan across her kitchen. <laughs> and I still have the scar over this left hand. Wait, what happened? Why did she do that? Well, you see, my uh, parents built a new house in Chicago. We had grown up uh, for the first nine years in what was called the Rosenwald Building in Chicago. Uh, most upper class and uh, middle class blacks lived in Michigan Boulevard Garden Apartments. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald had a unit there. Well, they called them co-ops in Chicago. Um, Jesse Owens, uh, Sarah Vaughn. I got to meet all of them because I went to the kindergarten and nursery, well, the nursery school and kindergarten right there in the building. Um, it was right there on 47th Street uh, between 47th, 46th, Michigan, and Wabash. So I had a whole lot of role models. My grandfather lived in the building also. It 
had close to uh, 800 co-op units in it. My grandfather started the Post Office 400 Club. He was the first black to become a postmaster in Chicago for one of the stations. So, you know, we had a lot of role models, a whole lot of people. Oh, my father's uh, uh, uncle, Uncle Bob, lived over there too, he and his wife. We had a whole lot of role models and a whole lot of people looking out to make sure we didn't do stupid stuff. My mother would take us to the police station up at 48th and Wabash and would introduce us to all the police officers. And you see, back then, because of segregation, there were all black police officers in there. You know, I grew up with black doctor's children, black dentist's children, black attorney's children. It was immersion in African-American elitism, so to speak. You know, I, we were in Jack and Jill. That's uh, an African-American mother's club. Uh, we were in the Boy Scouts. Well, Cub Scouts and then Boy Scouts. And my father would help us put the projects together. Uh, we'd go camping. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that I would say go camping. Uh, you see, Frederick Douglass Jr. was a real estate developer. And he was selling plots of land right outside of Annapolis, Maryland, the Chesapeake Bay. Well, our parents would ship us out of Chicago every summer, and we go, my grandmother could tolerate us two days, and then she'd take us down to the country. That's what we called it, Highland Beach, Maryland. And our family owned an inlet off of Chesapeake Bay. Because, you know, my mother's, she had uh, two sisters and two brothers, and one of the sisters had nine children, and they all bought parcels of land. Well, my uncle Walt, uh, who had been in World War I, he had become the first black police lieutenant in the District of Columbia. Uh, he had bought a parcel of land, but he, he was the senior, so to speak. And they had bought other land that they were rent leasing out as a Girl Scout camp till he found out they weren't allowing black girls to come to the camp, say the least, <laughs> to say the least. Mm -hmm the lease was shut down. So, you know, I've, 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 I've seen it over the years uh, where my family has said, no, we ain't playing that mess. And my Uncle Walt, he carried a big old 45 revolver. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a 45 automatic because he was a military policeman because he was very light-skinned during World War I, so they couldn't tell what he was. Is what they would call a pass. Yeah, mm -hmm. when he needed to. But <laughs> no, <laughs> he don't. <laughs> we <laughs> homie don't play that. Right. Okay. But no, I had a rich childhood. We traveled uh, all over the country. Uh, we would ride the Baltimore and Ohio uh, trains to Washington D.C. Uh, they all knew Mrs. Reed, you know, six foot one, fine as she want to be, uh, because many of their kids had gone to this elementary school that she taught at or 
uh, had gone to Dunbar High School where uh, Bernie Mac DC? graduated from, huh? You're not talking about the Paul Lawrence Dunbar in D.C. No, uh, um, I got a picture a couple days ago from my uh, cousin that shows my Aunt Joyce as uh, from 1947 as one of the Homecoming Queen court members. So, yeah, my family knows about Dunbar High School in D.C. also. Yeah. Well, first thing, man, I got to say, your upbringing sounds amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I grew up, my mom was very disciplinary, and my dad was the same way. It was like, like, my dad, my dad has philosophy when it came to schoolwork. So my mom was more like your mom. Like, it needs to be done by the time I walk through the door. No excuses, nothing like that, you know. My, take the trash out. But my dad, my dad's expectation was perfection. So there was no paper I could submit. There was no homework I could do and score less than 100 on it if I did it at home, yeah. right? So one of the things that used to get under my skin with my dad was that uh, say you wrote something and you misspelled it and you had to use the eraser. Yeah. You got to get a whole new sheet of paper and do everything all over again. That was my dad. Like no eraser marks on your paper. You can't even show that you made a mistake. Like everything, you know. That's why you were supposed to use a clean eraser when you clean it. <laughs> <laughs> then it wouldn't leave marks. Look, I started to learn to write real soft, right? I would write, I would use the pencil real soft so it would be, like, almost transparent. You can barely see it. That way when you erase it, you never even be able to tell. Let me ask you, what, what do you feel were some of the – what would you feel were some of the most important parts of your childhood that shaped you into the man you would later become? A whole bunch of uncles over six foot three. Because <laughs> we couldn't get away with anything. So that community thing, the community watching the child. The family, the family and the community. Because you see, I got to put the family forefront. Because they, we were exposed we were to more, exposed more and we were exposed to the neighbors. And after my father died in 65, my uncles took over. My uncles even took the shortest over. one who was only 5'8". Five, five, uh, <laughs> 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 well, he was uh, regional director for the IRS out of Cleveland, Ohio. And he would come at least once a month because they'd have a big meeting in Chicago. And he'd walk up, he'd say, Junior, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing fine. And he slapped a taste down my mouth. I said, what was that for? He said, just remember that I'll come back and give you more if you mess up. Oh, man. Yeah, that was my father's first cousin. And my Uncle L. Now, he was... He graduated from Knoxville College back in 1948, and he and my father hooked up. They had, uh, well, the Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity in Chicago had a Kentucky club. My daddy was from Louisville, and my uncle was from Paducah. Now, my father graduated in uh, January 1940. He was considered uh, 1940 and a half. One of his classmates was Cassius Clay Sr., Father. The father. Yeah, my father's, yeah, my father's buddy, buddy was Cassius Clay Sr. But the thing but is the thing that is, with all these with all uncles, these uncles that played football, played in, college, football in college, they didn't play, they didn't play with the kids. With the kids. Mm. They didn't take no mess. 
Didn't take no mess. I mean, you said you said the one uncle was the, was with the IRS. It's like the regional director of the IRS. That sounds like somebody who don't take no mess. Yeah. No. Yeah. Now he graduated from the University of Louisville, uh, and then uh, my uncle Bert. He passed away about six years ago. He uh, graduated from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Uncle L, as I said, graduated from Knoxville College where he played football and basketball. Um, Uncle Rio, uh, I'm getting ready to fight to get his Silver Star upgraded to the Congressional Medal of Honor. He, now this is a story, he had graduated from Stanford University back in 1938. Went to World War II and got his leg blown off, saving his wounded platoon. Came back and applied for Stanford Law School. Stanford Law School did not accept blacks until 1952. So he wound up going to the University of Santa Clara and became the first black law school graduate from the University of Santa Clara. Bought a house in Palo Alto. On the GI Bill paid 1,400 and some odd dollars. When he and Mon Ethel came out the last time before she passed away, they wanted $1.2 million for that house in Palo Alto. Now he passed away five years ago, um, a month short of his 100th birthday. And I promised myself that, you know, just like the brother Colonel Davis that just got the Congressional Medal of Honor, I have all his paperwork. And I'm going to fight to get his Silver Star upgraded to the Congressional Medal of Honor. But that's just one of my little side jobs that I get to when I ain't grading the papers of these Sac State students who don't know how to use spell check. But anyhow... <laughs> Oh, they lose two points with misspelled word. Oh, they lose man. five points. Uh, and all they have to do is two-page essays about environmental disasters that have occurred in California. Uh, have them write about the Iron Mountain Mine up here uh, nine miles northwest of Redding. The acid mine drainage from that mine is the most uh, acidic in the world. It's actually a negative 3.4, okay? So Zero is, you know, battery acid. Auto like acid. enough to melt your skin. Oh, no, this will melt metal. Yeah. And it's naturally forming off that mountain? Yeah. Well, you see, the thing is, when they uh, were mining it, it was the largest copper mine in California. They took out gold, iron, zinc, and sulfur. Well, they fractured the mountain so that when it rains, water seeps into it, mixes with the sulfur, and what do you get when you mix water and sulfur? It's called sulfuric acid. The reason I have the students write about that, that was the first Superfund site in California. It killed over 22 million salmon in the Sacramento River. That seems like an ecological disaster. Yeah. That's why it became the first Superfund site in California. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm not. So what do you... All right, so that gets into the water. Obviously, kills the salmon. Yeah. gets into the water. Water flows downstream. 
Right, but that's also the drinking water for the right, city so of Reading. What, what right, so what happens to the people who drink it? No, well, you see, the thing is, they, because it became a Superfund site, they built a retaining reservoir, Kennewick Reservoir, and what they do is they have holding ponds, and all the minerals that come out, that leach out of the mine, they sell it to pay for the Superfund remediation. I had them write about Tulare Lake. Tulare Lake down in uh, Kings, Kern, and, uh, well, Kings and Kern County was the largest freshwater body west of the Mississippi until after uh, the Civil War. And the gold miners and the uh, farmers came in and they dammed it. This lake, you could put five Lake Tahoes in it. It was. It was that big. It was 64 to 68 miles north to south and 32 to 36 miles east to west. Well, that's huge. Yeah, but it ain't there no more. Because of the drought? No, because they dammed the five rivers that drain into it that bring the snow melt to Lake, I mean, to Larry Lake. So what, what, what size is it now? It ain't nothing but uh, wetlands and retention ponds. And the retention ponds are killing the migrating birds because our Sierras have naturally occurring selenium in them. And when, you know, the snow melt and everything washes down, it accumulates in the ponds. Now, up here in Merced County at the Kesterson Reservoir, they had all this agricultural runoff going into the retention ponds. In addition, there's more selenium in the central Sierra than there is the southernmost Sierra. And we have 4.4 billion migratory birds that pass through this valley every year. We have 4.0 billion that head back north because obviously they didn't have their babies. But if you ever... Uh, Google Kesterson Reservoir and look at images. Birds were born with no beak. Birds were born deformed, without eyes, with one leg, or three eyes. K E S T E R S O N Reservoir. Uh, and click on images and you'll see. Aren't you ready to wake up somewhere new? Sacramento is now welcoming visitors, and it's time to book your travel. Our restaurants want to feed you. Our shops can turn those stimulus checks into something fun. And our hotels want to be your safe haven outside the four walls you've been cooped up in. The weather's beautiful. And since you can't just hang out doing nothing, well, you can and we won't judge you. Head outside for a mural tour by bike or Lake Natoma on a paddleboard. Check out visitsacramento.com forward slash welcome back. 64% rate of deformity and death of embryos and hatchlings of wild aquatic birds, according to the United States Geological Survey. And most of those were endangered or threatened species. And this is all from the mining of the mountain? No, this is naturally occurring selenium. We have selenium in our body, but just a minute amount. But you see, the rocks, the minerals in our Sierra wash down. And when you have a valley, it's going to cradle it. And so it builds up. And I talk about the Suicide Ghost Fleet. They used to be uh, right off of 680 in Suicide Bay. 
they had up to 400 Navy ships from dating back from World War II all the way up until uh, uh, the Gulf War. And these ships were just sitting there rusting. You know, they're supposed to be the ready fleet in case we have a naval conflict. Well, they were just rusting, deteriorating. But you see, the thing is, the Navy uses lead paint that also contains cadmium in it. And these little things flake off, and they're eaten by the fish. So the fish are being uh, killed uh, by eating the lead, and the fish migrate from the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers out to the ocean, and fish will eat whatever catches their eye. And then they come back, but they're eating these flakes of lead paint. And it's just as poisonous to them as it is us. Yeah. Now, one of the other major problems that we have, and I had taken an ecology course down at uh, San Jose State using my GI Bill when I got out of the Air Force, and we took 183 samples, core samples of the bottom of San Francisco Bay, and we were finding mercury up to an inch and a half thick, anywhere from two inches to three inches below the bottom of the San Francisco Bay. In liquid form? Yeah. You gotta remember, we had the gold rush. How do you separate the gold from the quartz? You use mercury. And we had mercury mines. The Almond and Quicksilver mine, which was down at the bottom of where I was, my last duty site. Uh, they just now finished cleaning up the uh, Quicksilver mine, which is mercury, in uh, Clear Lake on the Native American Reservation. There were also Quicksilver mines in the Sierra foothills. That's why you're not allowed to dredge the Sacramento River, the Yuba River, the Feather River, the San Joaquin, Tuolumne, or Macomb Rivers because of the mercury that was used during the gold rush. People didn't know anything about mercury back then. Well, the scientists did. So let's say, hypothetically, there was like a massive storm or, or even, God forbid, an earthquake off the west coast of like the San Francisco Bay Area. Is it possible that that mercury that's sitting there at the bottom of the bay could contaminate the water supply? Yeah, it can get stirred up. That's what I mean. It all depends on the earthquake fault that it that erupts. Okay. It all depends on the earthquake fault that erupts. Now, let's talk about the Almond and Dam and Reservoir. Okay, there's buku mercury at the bottom of that because of Almond and Quicksilver mine. And when water washes down and washes into a captive body of water, such as a reservoir, you're going to have consider, uh, a considerable concentration of that mercury. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. People just swimming over top of them. Don't even realize it for the most part. But it's there. That sounds extremely dangerous. You have to get a a special permit from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers before you do any dredging in any navigable water of the United States here in the state of California. And that's the remnants 
of the gold mining um, that was 170 years ago. So why, why are so many people so opposed to dredging? And um, just for the listeners who aren't familiar with dredging, dredging is when you use machines to excavate material from a water environment. So say they found, they, they did a geological survey and found that there was gold underneath the Lake Tahoe. They would bring in machines and they would basically dig that up from under the water. That's called dredging. Now, why are so many people opposed to that, to dredging? Well, number one, our history here in California is that there's mercury that's been, been deposited in all of our rivers. And mercury is considered a heavy metal. And even though it's in liquid form, it's still considered a heavy metal. Well, it's going to work its way down into the settlement. Well, when you dredge, you're scooping out the sediment. And what are you scooping with it? The mercury. So as long as the mercury or as long as the bottom of the body of water is not dredged or scooped out, the mercury is encapsulated. Once you unencapsulate it, all of a sudden, you got mercury floating down the stream. Yuba River is especially bad. The Consumers River, though, there's only three untamed rivers in the state of California. The Smith River up in the northernmost uh, corner of California, the Consumnes River has no dams on it. And finally, the Santa Clara River down in Ventura County. But because there was no dam on the Consumnes River, the mercury kept floating. And as it keeps floating, it gets eventually to the Sacramento River. But when you have an undammed river, it'll keep floating, especially with the winter snowmelt. So that's why people uh, are opposed to dredging. They have a special permit for out here at uh, Miller Park over on the Sacramento River because the uh, yacht harbor is there. And they have to dredge the material that's floated downstream so the boats can go in and out. Well, they have a special permit. And they have to take the dredged material down here to Coalinga, about 300 miles south of here. Well, 275 miles south of here because that's the only hazardous material waste site uh, <coughs> on the west side of the valley. <clears throat> so, you know, they can't take a chance that they didn't pull up mercury, so you got to take it to a hazmat site. So, let me ask you this question. If, um, say, you know how moving bodies of water change depth, right? Yeah. Some are more shallow. So, let's say you've got mercury that's, that's been shifted. Say they do some dredging upriver, and now the mercury's been shifted, so now the mercury's in the water moving downriver. And it gets to a thinner part of the water, say like one of those, uh, like a valley where the water is not very deep and it's kind of just like wetlands. Is that mercury now at surface level, pretty much? But the good thing about wetlands, um, the city of Arcata was told by the California Department of Water Resources uh, State Water Control Board that they had to build a new waste treatment plant. Uh, just like here in Sacramento County, it costs us $2.1 billion. The city of Arcata up on the North Coast didn't have that kind of money. 
But one of the environmental scientists at Humboldt State University said, well, why don't you just rebuild the wetlands and that'll filter out the toxins. And guess what? They spent $14 million instead of $2.1 billion and restored the wetlands, and that soaks up the toxins. So that works, then? Yeah. Now, what's the impact on the, on the wildlife and the wetlands? Well, you see, fortunately, uh, many of the plants that soak up the toxins expose it to solar energy. And what happened? It evaporates. Okay, so you're smiling as you say that, so I'm hoping that that means it's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Because it sounds absolutely terrifying to me that, that something like mercury becomes airborne and now you're walking through the valley breathing well, that. This article this morning, um, we had a 0.9% increase in carbon dioxide being released into our atmosphere uh, in 2022. The vast majority of mercury is released through the burning of coal. Coal contains mercury, lead, cadmium, and a number of other things that will kill you. Uh, we used to tell our kids, don't eat any yellow snow when we go up to the snow in the mountains. Well, now you tell them not to eat the gray snow. So, no, 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 let me finish. The gray snow are the chemical signatures of the coal that's burned in China. Comes across. Oh, just, just like that balloon came across. Well, once that uh, uh, residue from the coal that isn't completely burned gets into the jet stream, it lands on the west slope of our Sierra Mountains. And they see the chemical signature of the carbon that was burned. China was building a coal-fired power plant and bringing one online every month for 12 years. That's a whole lot of coal that's, that's being burned. No joke. See, I, no sugar, honey, iced tea is how I said to my students on the Zoom call. It's on the Zoom call. So I recall recently, uh, by recently I mean in the last five years, that I want to say it was the Environmental Protection Agency that said um, there's no longer any drinkable rainwater, that or or that there's no longer that there's no longer any rainfall that's safe to drink in its form without being pre-filtered because of the amount of chemicals that have globally gone into the air all of the uh, water supply that comes down from the air is contaminated? I wouldn't say that uh, because data has shown that some of that water, um, I don't want to say it. Well, you have acid rain, for example, uh, which has denuded the trees on the East Coast because they're burnt, they have coal-fired power plants. It's put up in the air, is grabbed by the moisture droplets, and it comes back down and wipes out all the green vegetation. But we're on the West Coast. It's a little bit different because ours comes from the ocean, whereas the moisture that's sucked up from the middle United States is also sucking up the uh, air pollution. Okay, um, 
The air is pretty clean here. The rain is pretty clean here. But you see, we have the benefit of evaporation occurring over the open ocean. There's no terrible industries west of us. That's where the wind comes from. That's where the evaporation comes from. That's where all these storms come from. But the further you get across the United States, you know, why do you, this is, well, the reason they build tall smokestacks at coal-fired power plants is so that it's dispersed at a higher altitude, okay? You know, when I was a kid, I used to, um, we, you know, back in these days, blizzards all the time, you know, big old, I remember the blizzard in 96, and we were out of school for like three months, and all, even in June, I kid you not, in June, there was a 20-foot high amount of snow still from the blizzard sitting in the parking lot of the school uh, where they had compressed it all together. And I remember when the snow would fall and it would be fresh, I would go outside with my siblings, we would play in, and I would eat it. And then one day, my dad said, no, you don't, need, don't eat that. And I said, why not? It's just snow. It's fresh falling. So he scooped some up in a glass and let it melt and then showed it to me. And all them black dots in there. And it was, it was, there was like rainbow colors on the top. And there was, that was the oil. There was, there was all kinds of, and, and so I never, I never drank, I never ate snow again after that. Like, cause it was just, uh, all of those chemicals in it. And then, you know, we've got the coal, we had, we had a coal power plant in DC on Benning Road. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go, my family lived right off Benning Road. Yeah. And then they had the big coal-fired power plant in Anacostia. In Anacostia, and you had Possum Point was a coal-fired plant, power plant. Um, and then you get up into Pennsylvania, and it's just coal, 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 coal yes. everywhere. In West, oh, yeah, West Virginia. Huge, huge, huge you know, coal. This made me think about some. My first job uh, was under President Johnson's Youth Opportunity Campaign, and my uncle was director of the Department of Corrections for the District of Columbia. He made sure all of his nephews worked. And I was paid <laughs> mail and file clerk GS1 wages at $2.14 and a half cents per hour. And I worked at Lorton Prison. Lorton, that's a name that you don't hear a lot anymore. Yeah, um, well, they shut it down. Yeah, for those of you unfamiliar, Lorton, uh, Lorton Prison was a prison just outside of Washington, D.C. in Lorton, Virginia, that was the... Uh, closest prison to the city of D.C. So everyone who was sentenced to any time over 366 days was sent to Lorton. Um, and then Lorton was shut down. And because it had no air conditioning. But it started out as a prisoner of war camp during the Civil War. I had no idea. Yeah. It started as a Civil War prisoner of war camp in Virginia. So you know... It was a Confederate camp. Right. right, and so then they converted it to a prison. To a prison, and I'd walk from my grandmother's house to the D.C. jail, catch the bus, going out in prison. And my uncle would have different entertainers come through every Friday because they had no air conditioning, and so to keep a whole bunch of hot-headed uh, inmates calm, they would have shows. I met James Brown. I already knew Duke Ellington and Count Basie. Uh, I met a whole bunch of folks. Wait, wait, wait. You met you met the Duke and Count and Count Basie? I met them where I grew up at. If you recall, I told you they had co-ops. So when they yeah. would come through Chicago, 
they just go to their own crib. Yeah. Well, I was a little kid. But the park across the street from my mother's house is Nat King Cole Park. And they named it after him right after he died. Okay. Now, we came back from Boy Scout camp. This was back in 1966. And I walk into my mother's house, you know, coming back from camp. And Martin Luther King and his wife, Dr. Ralph David Abernathy and his wife, and uh, Jesse Jackson and a couple other people, they're all sitting in my mama's living room because they're getting ready to have a big rally because they were trying to integrate the second most segregated city in the United States. They were going to march on Marquette Park, which was all white, and on the other side of the Dan Ryan Expressway. And I'll never forget my mother telling me, now these are my good crystal lemonade goblets <laughs> and picture, you better not drop it. Because, <laughs> you know, she had me take it over there because they, they had set up and she wanted me to set it because my mother was the uh, second vice president of the Southern of the Chicago chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership mm. Conference. So you see some of the stories I'm weaving talk about my family's involvement in civil rights. So we carried on because I remember seeing all them folks. When my father died, uh, Muhammad Ali was sitting in my mother's living room and a whole bunch of my uncles because me and my brother had just come from confession, but he took longer because <laughs> we went to Catholic schools. And it was in the next block. So, you know, I should have brought that picture of me and Muhammad Ali when he came here to uh, Sacramento back in 92. Because uh, he said, you big Rockies boy, huh? Because <laughs> my father's nickname was Rocky. They nicked they called him the Rock of Gibraltar. He was a defensive end for the Howard University football team. He was Big Rocky. I was Little Rocky. You know, he Big Rocky's boy because my daddy knew his daddy. Right, and you said there, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, so, so what, um, I mean, so growing up, you know, your your family is, is, is generationally involved in civil rights. The, the advocation of education in a black community, the, the, the tearing down the walls of Jim Crow. So what, uh, do you recall what the experience was like when those leaders were getting assassinated during that period between 1960 and 1970? Yeah, I specifically remember when Martin Luther King got shot. I had just won the Illinois State High School Athletic Association, uh, 440. And I was laying on the grass trying to get my breath. And uh, we had a radio station, WBON, the wonderful voice of the Negro in Chicago. And um, try, <laughs> the name of the uh, Don Cornelius used to read the news on WVON. And then he had Soul Train come on after school on UHF channel. And uh, as we're listening to the music, and he said, the news has just come over the wire. Martin Luther, Be Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. <sighs> and that was April 4th, 
1968. And I remember that. Hell, it's choking me up right now. So, uh, <clears throat> been there and done that. Uh, and it's had an impact with somebody I had met, somebody whose hand I had shook. Because Mrs. King and my mama were in the kitchen uh, fixing whatever they were fixing. But, uh, you know. Did I, that in I, any I way remember that. dull you in the sense of make you want to take a step back? Because it doesn't seem like you did. It seems like, I mean, you you have consistently been advocating, consistently being involved, consistently speaking up for the community, consistently, you know, speaking up for well, education. Well, not me, so, then who? Well, well that's, that's, that's the, the thing, thing that... You know, I, I, I'm, I messed around opening up my mouth. Uh, right after I got here, they were having a meeting of the Summit of African American Concerns. And Ida Sidnor had a facility down here on Broadway and 32nd. And uh, the summit was talking about all the stuff that was going on. Uh, it had to have been 1991, early 1991. And uh, I said, well, was anybody looking at redistricting? And most of the people didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And uh, they said, well, why don't you chair that committee? <laughs> Open my mouth. Um, but see, I'd only been here a couple months, so uh, they suggested that uh, Robert Purnell uh, be the co-chair because he was the one who got Sacramento Avenue converted to Martin Luther King Boulevard. He was a longtime community activist. And so literally, my hand drew the map of the city council districts here in Sacramento. And I reunited Meadowview. And people said, how did you do that? I said, well, it was me, Pam Haynes, who's now a chairman of the California Community College Commission, Lauren Hammond, who served two terms on the city council after we had done the maps. And then we were the, I hate to say the computer whizzes, but once we got all the census tracts lined up, you see, they had divided Meadowview between two districts, between District 7 and District 8. And they didn't have sidewalks in Meadowview. There were streets that didn't have street lights. It was predominantly black. Well, when I drew the map, my mama taught me how to count. And it's one it through one eight, through eight. Not, one not one through one seven, through then, seven then, I mean, one through, one through eight, eight and then, and then seven. seven. So I renumbered them. You know, so it, know, went, so from it went from the river, river east, east, and, uh, and you, uh, had, you one, had one, two, two three, four, three, four, five, five six, six, seven, seven eight. eight. That's how I numbered them. And it wound up kicking Lynn Roby off the city council. Who had, had she would have had to move had in the metal view from the pocket. From the pocket. Mm. Mm. She wasn't going to do, do that. And so we got so my we frat got brother, frat Sam Pinnell, elected. elected. So let me ask you, have you seen the latest redistricting map that has left a section uh, of no, Sacramento no, unrepresented? That, 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 that doesn't make sense. I mean, so is that gerrymandering? How, I mean, how does that how, how do you? I, would, how do I you? wouldn't really say it's gerrymandering, but they didn't take into account when they would have elections. We blanketed all the black churches. There used to be 117 black churches in Sacramento. 
with these cards that were just larger than the automated mail processing machines. So they had to hand count them. Oh, messed up their machines because they were so pissed at me. But hey, you know, whatever it takes. And uh, every black minister had their congregation fill it out and mail it in. And they got over 30,000 of these bright yellow postcards that wouldn't fit through the me. So they had a hand count them. And then there was an open mic. And the first city council vote, they didn't want to kick Lynn Roby off the city council. And so I went up to Lila Ferris, who was up there uh, supposedly representing the people in Del Paso Heights. And I said, you'll never get another black vote. Didn't realize the mic was hot. Guess what? She never got another black vote. <laughs> oh, no. But you see, the thing is, I joke. Okay. I'm from Chicago. I'll ask for forgiveness afterwards. But I joke that at West Point, they taught us 28 different ways to take a person out. First 27 don't work. I'm going to talk you into suicide. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this. <laughs> At SMUD, we're committed to zero carbon by 2030. We're creating more energy from renewable resources, reconfiguring our power plants to improve air quality, electrifying our fleet, greening our buildings, and accelerating clean energy with our first grid-scale battery farm. The Clean Power City movement is happening. For 37 ways you can join the charge, visit cleanpowercity.org. I feel that the homeless crisis in, in Sacramento has been a tremendously been divisive a issue no matter what size you're on. Oh, we got all this money to, you know, uh, house the unhoused? Yeah, right. Well, how come uh, under the bridge on Broadway at Highway 99, there's all these people and there's brand new buildings sitting on the north side of uh, Broadway that isn't even occupied? You know, they said it was going to, support 150 unhoused people. They've never opened it yet. You know, really, if you're serious about it, the uh, tiny housing, uh, the tiny houses over there on Florin and uh, Power Inn, they still ain't ready for people. They installed them all, but they haven't put in the gas, they haven't put in the sewer, they haven't put in the water, they haven't put in the electricity. And they set those houses Last May, really? If you're in that much of a hurry to house people, well, get your acting gear. So one of the, you know, I see it, it, you got several different components at play. Um, the neighborhood residents themselves tend to push back a lot on NIMBYs. the NIMBYs, right? They tend to push. They tend to give a lot of pushback on. Uh, programs taking place in their community, tiny houses like they wanted to. There's this, there's this grocery store that's not in use anymore. They want to knock that down and use the parking lot to build a tiny home community. The neighborhood said no. You've got the the county supervisors who were sitting on enough money to 
make an impact on homeless from the COVID pandemic from the federal government and, and said and instead spent that money on the giving sheriff. the sheriff's departments raises. Uh, and then you've got you've got people, council members who are attempting to uh, create spaces and programs for the unhoused, but then you've got a bigger issue. A lot of the unhoused in Sacramento have an income. And don't want to go into well, public I, housing. I will say that. I'll, I'll say this. Here, here's one of the issues that I see happening in Sacramento is because I, I faced this personally when I came in. They they have so many the, the the housing market is almost unregulated in Sacramento in the sense that rent price increases if the property is vacant you can jack the rent up however much you want. Yeah. Number two. There's no cap on how much you can charge for a deposit for a person to move in, and you got a lot of people wanting three, basically the equivalent of three months' rent just to get in the door. You've got people who want you to have a 650 credit score just to rent a room, and you and you can't have a cosigner. So this is disenfranchising a lot of people because take someone, take one of your students for example. You got a 19-year-old who hasn't even had, who hasn't even lived long enough to establish credit, right? They, they have a job, they make enough money where they could afford it, but the requirements you make three times the rent. So or that- Or their parents do. And so they, um, so like I said, a lot of people are being disenfranchised because they're just, it's the landlords who are setting restrictions, excuse me, that are practically discriminatory. And so I actually am in a- Economically discriminatory. Economically discriminatory. And so I'm actually in the process of composing a proposed measure for the Sacramento County ballot that would put a cap on how much, um, by square footage, price control, price control, well, rent, yeah, control. rent control, well, no, because it doesn't put a cap on how much they can charge for rent. So what my proposed measure would do would cap any, any property, any residential property in Sacramento County that is under 1,660 square feet, uh, could only charge a deposit that is the equivalent of one month's rent. Then they, if, they, if a landlord uses credit as a consideration in determining the eligibility of an applicant, then same landlord must report to the credit bureau when, should the applicant become a tenant, they must make regular reports to the credit bureau updating that applicant status. That they've been paying. That they've been paying or not paying. Further... Um, it would restrict, uh, it would require landlords who, landlords, property managers who own more than one rental property to be licensed uh, by the county of Sacramento. The funds from those licensing, from that licensing, well, from if that you licensing have one, go, you have to have a license from the county of Sacramento. You have to have a license. We had to annually get a license for our townhouse rental that we sent sold to our son. Uh, Every year, you, I think it was uh, $30 a year. So the, the multi-unit the multi license that I'm talking about would be maybe 10 times that minimum, like $300 a year. Um, and it would, fund, it would fund emergency shelters as well as homelessness programs throughout Sacramento County. It would also uh, compel the county government to make public reporting on the status of rental properties throughout Sacramento County and showing that they are enforcing 
um, those things. Um, the issues that I see, it, it, I will say I don't envy any of the politicians now who are charged with the duty of resolving this housing crisis because it is a multifaceted issue and there are many different parts at play. Um, and there are also at different ends of the spectrum. You see, one of the things that I used to advocate, you read that I used to be on the board of directors of Habitat for Humanity. You know, that was 20 years ago. But the point still remains that if we can put them into housing that they have an ownership stake in, it's a whole lot different. If we could get these... 35, 35 to 40% of the unhoused that are veterans into, into housing. That would that take out a third, a third to 40% of the unhoused. You know, so, you know, when we say multifaceted, we have to take into account also that there are many individuals that have mental health issues that don't want to be under a roof. So, now... That brings us to Measure O. Right. So Measure O, um, one of the provisions of Measure O is it, it makes public camping illegal um, but can only be enforced if the county has provided and has available a bed for that individual and that individual has been offered that bed and refused it. Then they could then the housing the anti-camping provision of Measure O could be enforced and that person could be removed. So if there is not an available bed for them to go at a, at a shelter, then they will be able to set their tents up, blah, blah, blah. Um, the, 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 the county's been backsliding. I just talked about all those tiny houses. The, and the, like you said, they don't have the electricity, they don't have the water, they don't have the, they don't have the uh, infrastructure so that they're livable. And it's been a whole year. So what what if you were if you were charged with creating a plan to I want to say resolve the housing the, the homelessness slash housing crisis but that's not realistic but to corral it a bit what what ideas would you do you have on that number one I'd wipe out thirty five to forty percent of those unhoused who are veterans. We built housing off of uh, Florin Mall Drive for the veterans. Build more housing for the veterans. Go out there to Mather. There's still a whole lot of U.S. government property out there. Build housing for the veterans. Get the veterans unhoused and 40% of your problem is gone. The same at McClellan. It's a, it's a tragedy. I just want to say, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is, it should be a crime that any person who served in the military and defended this country should come back to this country and be homeless. Yeah. That is absurd to me. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's... Now, one of the things I didn't put on my bio was that I volunteer, well, up until the pandemic, I had volunteered out at the McClellan VA Center working with veterans that were unhoused, veterans who had substance issues, 
veterans who have PTSD, because I got PTSD. But I worked through mine back in the early 80s. Okay, I still get ticked off, but I don't act out. But you see, the thing is, many of them are suffering from PTSD. My brother-in-law, for example, he's a 100% disabled veteran. He was in Somalia, and a roadside bomb exploded, and the guy in the passenger seat's head, severed head, landed in his lap. He still has alcohol problems. But we have to, uh, it's a multifaceted issue with the veterans because you have the PTSD, you have the substance abuse, and you have the mindset that I'm an ass kicker, that I'll blow you away, that I'll take you out. I've been trained to kill. You ain't going to tell me to do anything. And you see, that's the mindset that they ingrain in the formerly, the former members of the military during basic training. Basic training is designed to intimidate, break down, and then teach you how to be cocky. Do you think that, that veterans would benefit from a program that, say, at the, when they were approaching the end of their term or the end of their service, right? You know, you go through the, uh, what is it, nine months of boot camp? That's the standard, is it? No, boot camp is uh, 12 to... Um, eight to 12 weeks. So what if they, do you think it would help if there was a program created within the military that towards the last eight to 12 weeks of a person's service, they did the opposite of the boot camp? And they're, do, they're starting to do that now. They're starting to, I don't, don't want to say deflate, but they're starting to get them prepared to go into the civilian world. Yeah. Uh, my niece that we raised, her husband's retiring from the Marine Corps after 20 years. Three tours in Iraq, two tours in Afghanistan. But he's going through, I don't want to say it's an out-processing, but it's a return to civilian life program. And they're making all the Marines down at Camp Pendleton go through that before they get discharged. So you, you would agree that something like that would be helpful? Oh, across no, the no it's war. definitely needed. You know, you just put somebody out on the street that's been carrying a, a, a machine gun, shooting at people, killing people, getting shot at. No, you can't just put them, plop them back in the middle of the city. You have to, I don't want to say deprogram them. I really can't say that's the uh, right uh, word. I get where you're coming from because deprogram isn't the right word. Um, it, but, it, but, but that would be the of it. Yeah. Would be that you you, you now take you all of that because you know the military is long held is long regarded the boot camp process is to break you down and then rebuild you in the military's image and so right. maybe an exit program would break down the military's image and rebuild you as a civilian. Right now you see uh, the Air Force and their benevolent wisdom uh, said that because I had an aptitude for language sent me to the Presidio of Monterey down in Monterey, California. And this was during the Cold War. They trained me in Polish, Russian, Czechoslovakian, and Serbo-Croatian. 
because I had four years of high school and four years of college Spanish. I had an aptitude for language. Uh, but then they tried to explain to me we'd be flying over Eastern Europe, communist territory, monitoring radio transmissions, and if I got shot down, they were getting ready to teach me how to use a suicide kit. I said, I will tell them what color underwear my mama wears on the second Tuesday of February. <laughs> so they sent me to Biloxi, Mississippi. And retrained me as an electronic warfare officer. <laughs> no, nah, I'm serious. We'd be flying in an AWACS plane with headphones on just listening to military radio transmissions. I still remember some of the language. You know, but you see, I speak nine languages, and I was learning yeah. Punjabi. What languages do you speak? Doctor? Okay, I speak uh, Spanish, well, English, Spanish, Polish, Russian, Czechoslovakian, Serbo-Croatian. I'm learning Punjabi. I speak enough Italian, French, and German, and Korean uh, to flirt with the ladies. I'll just <laughs> leave it at that, okay? Because my wife might hear this story. <laughs> And we've been married 32 years come June. So you, you did serve in the Air Force. You got an honorable discharge, 1973, right? 1974. 74. Were you an officer? Yes. Because of the college experience, yeah? You went in as a, as a commissioned officer. And you see, the thing is, um, my father died when I was three weeks past 13 years of age. So I never got to ask him, Daddy, what did you do during the war? And I didn't find out until about seven and a half, eight years ago when I was able to secure all his military records. He was a rare officer. He had flunked out of, well, he had washed out of Tuskegee Airmen Flight School. And what they did, they made them supply officers, radar officers, radio officers, air traffic controllers. I was a radar officer. My last duty site was at Almanin Air Force Station in the Santa Cruz Mountains. You are, so you, you Long have, range you search radar. Your father yeah, and you I never that, knew you it. That eight years, eight, seven, eight years ago. Yeah, and I'm 70 now. So how does it make you feel to, to know that you, you, you walked the same line? Uh, it's a hell of a coincidence. Mm. So let me ask you, when you were in boot camp, did you ever get shark attack? Which is, uh, for those of you who don't know what a shark attack is in boot camp, it's when one drill sergeant starts going in on you, and then other drill sergeants see that, and like the smell of blood, they come in, start going in on you. Now you're surrounded by three, four, or five drill sergeants all screaming at you at the top of their lungs. Um, and that the purpose of that, as, as it's been said, and also, just so you know, that has been made illegal now in the military. Yeah, but uh, the purpose of it was to teach you to focus under extreme pressure. Now... During Beast Barracks at West Point, that's your eight weeks of basic training, uh, we, would, we would have uh, upperclassmen doing the shark attack, as you say. Um, it was crazy. Now, transitioning to the Air Force, they sent me down to Lackland Air Force Base, and there wasn't none of that. Because I was already a commissioned officer. officer. Well, <laughs> yeah, you can tell I'm, and I am a service-connected disabled veteran. Uh, white boys thought it'd be funny to trip me in the gas tent, and it burned up my sinuses. Wait, I was in the hospital. Sorry. What happened? Okay. All military go through tear gas training. 
okay? They start the lecture, they pull the pin on the grenade, drop it in a bucket of sand on a table, and then you take off your mask. I mean, you put on your mask and they continue the lecture. At the end of the lecture, you rip off your mask, you shout your name, company, and serial number, and get out of the tear gas tent. Well, I got tripped. Somebody stuck their foot out there and I fell over it, okay? That's what tripped means. No, they didn't give me psychedelic drugs. They <laughs> tripped me. And so when I fell forward, I hit the table, because you always put your hands out when you're falling. And you know, tear gas burn my eyes, I can't breathe. And so when I hit the table, the table fell over the bucket of sand that had tear gas grenade on it, fell right up under me, and it shot up my nose. Oh my gosh. And so I was in a hospital three weeks, and I was in an uh, um, oxygen tent two weeks. And so now they pay me for the rest of my life. So when I go to the credit union to make sure my money in there, I can hear them laughing. <laughs> but I also have this card that says service-connected disabled veteran. So I have for respiratory issues and for my knees because we got pushed out of perfectly good airplanes. Pushed out? Like, I wasn't going to jump voluntarily. <laughs> what do I look like? I'm from Chicago. I ain't stupid. <laughs> no, seriously. So Back then, all cadets. You're at, you, 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 yeah. You don't have a choice unless they can see visible damage to your pack. Uh, and they put a on my behind every time. I wasn't going to jump. I get to the door. No, they put their foot on my butt and pushed me out with their foot. Oh, my first jump down at Fort Benning, we were at uh, Tower Number 2. And uh, there had been an accident. A uh, guy's chute didn't deploy, and he smacked the tarmac. And so we're getting on the plane, and, you know, there were only five of us brothers. And, uh, you know, we were trying, everybody get on the plane getting sick. That's why they had that grated metal on the bottom so the vomit oh. will go through. And so anyhow, um, you know, we're saying, stay strong, brothers, stay strong. You know, be strong. Next thing you know, the jump sergeant rips his helmet off and vomits in it. And then drinks it back just to get the brother sick. We found out he had put orange peels in his mouth, spit them in his helmet like he was <laughs> barfing, and put them back in. And I spit up all over his boots. <laughs> yes, I did. I sure did. But, you know, uh, it's interesting that during uh, your freshman year, the best two classes I took were meteorology and astronomy. Astronomy is the first map reading. Harriet Tubman, follow the North Star, mm -hmm. right? Now, for physical ed, you had to take uh, boxing, wrestling, swimming. They thought I didn't know how to swim. That was the easiest AF I ever got. They put me in rock squad swimming. I mean, I was, I had every aquatic merit bench the Scouts had. <laughs> I was on the swim team at the YMCA, at the Washington Park YMCA. And then you had an elective. I chose skiing. Colored boy, I want to go skiing. 
But you see, we used to go to the Lake Geneva Playboy Club when I was growing up and go skiing in Wisconsin. So, you know, uh, last week, Lester Holt had on a piece about the 50th anniversary of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. Up until 2009, I was skiing. The doctor said, this is your fourth knee surgery, no more. And my wife, avid skier. I've been a member of four different ski clubs from uh, Berkeley, San Jose, in San Diego. I say in San Diego for a reason. And then here in Sacramento, the Camellia City Ski Club. But I would still be skiing. My wife is afraid of heights. She'll hold you so tight on that chairlift. <laughs> no. So let me ask you a question. First time you got kicked out of a perfectly good airplane. So you're now you're in the air. What's that experience like for you? Well, once the, uh, you see, you have a, a static line, and you jump, and it automatically opens your chute. And you're, you know, the first thing you're saying is, damn, because <laughs> the ground coming closer. And these were the old chutes. You couldn't really control your descent. Mm. You're just coming down. And you hit the ground, you're supposed to hit and roll. And it was over. I said, Phew. <laughs> I ain't going to do that mess no more. Next thing I know, uh, we did two jumps that first day, two jumps the second day. Uh, did the fifth jump uh, that third morning. And then, the, you know, you get your airborne wings. And then uh, they was up at 5.30 in the morning, drunk as hell. Uh, you know, and uh, I fell out the helicopter. Fell out? Fell out. I, you know, we were drunk. We got drunk that night. And you okay. were still drunk at 5.30 in the morning from the night before. Right. And you see, with a helicopter, you have to lock your H harness so it clicks. And I didn't. And so you go up, make that bank at the jump zone, and then you start coming and everybody jump out. <laughs> I fell out. <laughs> but, uh, you shoot deployed, though. Oh, yeah. I'm going to pull the shoot because I heard everybody yelling my name. And I said, what the? Sugar honey iced tea. Earl in midair? No. Wait till you got to the ground. Uh-uh. Oh, he just toughed it, huh? No, I was scared as hell. I could imagine. I mean, you fell out of a helicopter. Yeah, but I had my wits about me to the extent that, you know, when you pull that ring, it fits your hand. You pull it. Grip it. But, you know, they had already briefed us that you got to be far enough away from the helicopter so you don't the get sucked up into the blades. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that'll ruin the day. Uh, I think it would. Yeah. Uh, man, but yeah. that's, that's, that's. So what do you, what do you do, what do you do for fun other than skiing? Uh, watching my wife spoil my grandson, who's two and a half. What do I do for fun? I, I participate with my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi. My son was the 15th member of my fraternity. Uh, when he got made, he went to Jackson State on a golf scholarship. Uh, he graduated from there in 2017, PGA certified. So my son says, my daddy sucks at golf. I do. <laughs> I paid for him to get his lessons. You know, he, uh, the Observer did a big story on him when he signed uh, with Jackson State University. Uh, he played in the Junior PGA Championship with uh, Cameron Champ. 
back in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he uh, played down at Pebble Beach. He got his first job through the first tee, volunteering. He and my wife went to the White House to get the uh, Prudential Presidential Gold Volunteer Award. He had 1,403 hours of volunteerism between middle school and high school. You know, do something for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Get out there and help somebody. All my students, they get extra credit if they do community service. Four hours community service gets you 10 extra credit points towards your midterm or your final. Uh, I enjoy helping folks. You know, I was told by my mother, boy, you're blessed. You better use your blessings to help somebody else or you're going to lose your blessings. I've never been unhoused or homeless. I thank God every day. I'm grateful that I have a roof, food in the pantry, and can still walk most of the time. Most of it, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, but, uh, and I grow my own tomatoes. I got, is it, yeah, it's called Reed Family Farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my son gave me that sign uh, Christmas time. Um, but, you know, we take anywhere from 115 to 130 pounds of tomatoes out of the South Garden. Uh, we make salsa and we give it to our friends and family. As long as they bring back uh, embers and as long as they bring back a clean bottle, we'll give them some more. Those are my babies. Uh, we got all types of fruits and vegetables, green beans, okra, bell pepper, well, green bell peppers, red bell peppers, and yellow bell peppers, and uh, uh, two different types of jalapenos, hel uh, Italian peppers. You know, that's relaxing. I'm at the point where I just want to relax. Let the football game watch me. <laughs> you know, but uh, that's, that's what I enjoy doing, helping folks. You know, because the smile from you doing something nice for somebody else, you can't create that. You know, Dr. Dr. Reed, I got to tell you, you might be one of my favorite people I've ever met in my life. I mean, you you you've had ain't got no money. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you you've you've had such incredible experiences, and and I'm thoroughly impressed by your recall of every like to the details. You know, I love that because as a storyteller, yeah. my goal is always to make you feel like you're right there. You know, yeah. um, and then you 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 have said something that is the core, the very foundation of who I am which is, it's about others. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, uh, it ain't about me. I wouldn't let my kids watch reality TV. I started taking them to the golf course when James was three and a half and Jessica was five. You know, get out there. Get active. That's, that's you know, the goal, the goal for me is to make a, make a, I want to create a world for the people who are coming after me, yeah. where they are free from the challenges I've had to face. Well, well, leave a legacy. That's what I brought up when I was talking about I was the only black professor of environmental science in 23 different campuses. I got a legacy of 12 students. 
And I told him how to get the money. You know, the chancellor's office gave him $30,000 towards their uh, uh, tuition, just like the chancellor's office gave me $30,000 for my uh, doctorate down at USF 20 years ago. But I also got them the grants and the fellowships to be able to, they have stipends. You know, in some cases, they put them in the graduate student dorms. They don't have to worry about a place to stay, food to eat, and they're getting money in their pocket. You know, a story that I often tell, when I first got here to Sacramento from Insane Diego, uh, that was uh, September 28, 1990. Duke Majin, on that day, froze all state hiring. I was supposed to start at State Department, the California Department of Social Services as, as a statistician. I went out there and dug minimum wage. Dug ditches at minimum wage, because I'd like paper in my pocket. Yeah. Too old to be a gigolo. <laughs> but anyhow, no, literally, and I had two degrees. I had two degrees, but I'm out there digging ditches at minimum wage because I was taught the value of hard work. And that was one of the reasons that we started that Northern California African American Young Male Conference, to give students options. You know, everybody's not going to go to college, but everybody got to find out a way to earn money. That's why we have eight to ten apprenticeship programs there. And I said, well, if you, like I made the joke during my uh, 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 speech, if you want to get out there and deal drugs, I got four people over here that want to talk to you, and they all have guns. You know, I got to tell you, that was a very impressive uh and, I, and I'm going to share with you the photos I took. It was so impressive having y'all all on the stage. The four people that Dr. Reed is talking about, there was, um, there was, there, there was doc, uh, Judge Nunley of the United States Eastern District. There was uh, the, the Chief Probation Officer of Sacramento County, the Sheriff of Sacramento County, the Special Agent in Charge of the Sacramento Field Office of the FBI, all black men on the same stage. And so when Dr. Reed said, yeah, if y'all want to get into selling drugs, I got four men right here who want to talk to you. Those are who he was pointing at and referring to. Dr. Reed, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to sit here uh, and be on verbal radio. Um, it has thoroughly been a pleasure to talk to you. It's and been my pleasure. I would love to have you back on the show uh, at another time and maybe even pan together so that we can have some conversations about what we can make, how we can make a better difference moving forward. 